Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On BTS Podcast, I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do and how they do it. This particular episode is another episode that I get to record with a strategist. If you find me on Breaker, you can find a playlist that I created where I have all of the BTS Podcast strategist episodes, as well as a few other episodes from other podcasts that I've listened to. Just find me, Lene L. Y-N-A-E, Cook, C-O-O-K, on Breaker, which, by the way, and they're not paying me to say this, is my favorite way to listen to podcasts. And you can find the playlist and listen to every episode of this podcast where I talk to a brilliant strategist. I've had the privilege of speaking to many strategists across agencies, entertainment, corporate strategists, and it's been great. And so I highly encourage you, if you are in a marketing or strategy role, to dig into those because you might learn a few things. This episode is with Leah Haberman. Leah and I have interacted online for quite some time, and I recently moderated a panel that she, Sierra Reed, who is an upcoming guest, and Marie Cravens were on. In our conversation, Leah shares what she's reading to better empower influencers, her perspective on impactful influencer and brand partnerships, and how she's helped steer legacy media companies into new ways of thinking. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I had a ton of fun recording it with Leah, and I hope that you find some time to support this podcast. You can support this podcast financially if you go to anchor.fm slash Podcast. There is an option to support on a monthly basis, which huge thank you to Camillo and Idris for their ongoing support. You can also Venmo me if you feel like it at Lene, L-Y-N-A-E dash cook. I stopped drinking coffee a while ago, but you know, it helps me sometimes if I eat. So please feel free to shoot me some funds on Venmo if you learned anything, gained any insight or information from this podcast, or just enjoy the soothing sound of my voice as some of my friends tell me. Free ways that you can support this podcast include sharing episodes that you love on social. Please do rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you can use my promo codes for apps and services that I love. Those include Hotel Tonight, which you are able to book great hotel stays at hotels around the world at a discounted rate. Their loyalty program is terrific. I'm a huge fan. And someday when it's safe to travel again, I hope that you enjoy them. But if you sign up now using my promo code LCOOK61, someday when you do go to book travel, you will save on your first hotel stay and I will get $25 toward my next hotel stay, which is very helpful because sometimes I like to go places or I have gone places to record episodes of this podcast and it is nice to have a place to stay where I don't feel like I'm inconveniencing anyone. Also, I use both Robinhood and Acorns to manage my investments. Robinhood is a self-service app where you can buy and sell stocks and cryptocurrency. Their interface is super user-friendly. You can go to join.robinhood.com slash L-Y-N-A-E, C as in cook, to join. Acorns is a more passive way to invest and invest your funds for you. So they manage the portfolio. You get to choose if you want aggressive, conservative, etc. They have a great amount of options on there. They also have a really terrific found money program where you get a bit more into your account every time you go through their app to make purchases on several, actually like a lot of different sites. Anytime I order Postmates, go through Acorns and I get 25 cents in my account. And if you use the credit card that you've linked to your Acorns account, when you go to Chevron, you will also get 25 cents in your account. For other sites like Airbnb, if you book through Acorns, you get 1.8% of your Airbnb purchase. So far, using their found money app, I think I have like 
like over $200 that I wouldn't have had in my account anyways. Granted, I've also used Acorns for probably six or seven years. Anyhow, there is a link to join in the description of this episode. I highly recommend that you do that if you have been curious about investment and you're scared to do it on your own. I've seen really good returns on mine and I'm really happy with their program. So please give it a shot using my promo code. We will both get a little bit of money if you sign up to get you started and to just help me out. It'd be great. Nobody pays for this podcast outside of the couple of people who support it on a monthly basis and I don't have a sponsor. So any help is super appreciated. Anyways, enjoy this conversation with Leah and thank you for listening. Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook, and I am very excited to have Leah Haberman on as a guest today. Hi, Leah. Hey, Lene. How's it going? I'm doing fine. Um, so a little bit of context, and I will have explained this in the intro already, but I know, uh, you know, some people, myself included, sometimes skip past intros. So Leah is a digital media advisor and advocate for founders and creators, and she's worked with a ton of companies, including Yahoo, E, Riot, Beachbody, Hourglass Cosmetics, and on apps including Fitbody, Dive Through, and Kick. She's also an adjunct professor of social media marketing and influencer marketing at UCLA Extension and a professional member advisor of the American Influencer Council, which is interesting. I've never even heard of that, so I'm really interested to learn about that. Yes. Well, they actually only launched six months ago, so or about six months ago, so you're excused if you haven't heard of them. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I would love, I think, first of all, if you could talk a little bit about your work um, prior to being an adjunct professor, you know, some of your work at Livestrong, and, um, and the other companies mentioned, I think that would be just a really good foundation for how you have come into what you're doing now. Yeah, well, and I've been teaching for almost three years and right up until this year, I was working at the same time. So it was kind of in parallel. I've always been in media. I worked for probably, you know, my first real job out of college was working at E um, and I worked for E for almost, almost 10 years. Um, really as an editor, I was there and I'm dating myself a little bit, but I was there as you know, Facebook and Twitter and then Instagram were exploding um, in, a, in a kind of business sense. I mean, obviously people, you know, Facebook, like it was already on college campuses, but I was at E when we decided like, should we start a Facebook account and who's gonna do Twitter? And at the time it was very early days and it was actually my intern that um, ultimately we decided out of everybody on the team, was going to do that. And I know that like people hate that idea that like, oh, let the intern do it. But in those days, really back in the day, it was like nobody saw really any value to it. And it was just like, okay, we have to do this because we're being told, you know, by maybe like a higher up to do this, but there's no strategy. There's no like, how is this playing in? What are our KPI? Like, there's no goals. There's no nothing. It's just like, let's find somebody to make sure they go on and post and maybe talk to people every day. And so, you know, I was working, I was more of an editor for the content that we were doing for the, the website, you know, both blog posts and, and video content that we were doing for e-online. My intern was working on social, but we'd have these meetings and we'd do these, these polls and we'd be, we'd ask people on Twitter, like, who do you want to see today? And anytime we included Channing Tatum's name in the, who do you want to see? Channing Tatum would retweet it to his followers and he would get the most votes. So we ended up writing a lot of photos. Like if you were on E! Online in like 2010, I'm trying to remember the exact dates, but like 2010, 2011, there was a lot of Channing Tatum because he had a really engaged audience and he cared about social. So he was one of those early guys that was like, he got it. A little bit like you think of like, 
The Rock or Hugh Jackman or, you know, um, Ryan, wait, was it Ryan Gosling or Ryan Reynolds? I One feel of the, like Ryan Reynolds was more social. Yes, Ryan Reynolds. Um, so it was like, I felt like Channing Tatum was like those early guys that just got it and was online all the time. And I think that that kind of showed me the importance of, you know, bringing your audience um, and having an audience to leverage. That's kind of like a source of, of, uh, of power and value. Um, so kept working at E. Um, I actually left E for a little while and consulted uh, for E and for Style. I had just had a kid. Um, and so I was consulting for E and for Style. Um, and then I went to work for Yahoo. I went back to work full time. I went to work for Yahoo, was working in social um, at Yahoo for the entertainment division, which was music, celebrities, TV, movies. And we had no budget to do anything, but we had the clout. Um, in those days of like the Yahoo homepage, which still drives a significant amount of traffic. Um, so it was easy to get people to do, for example, Instagram takeovers. If I would repackage that Instagram takeover and put it on the homepage of Yahoo, um, we could get people like Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh, Betty White. We, I did an Instagram takeover with Betty White. How fun. Um, her secret to longevity is like eating hot dogs and french fries. I remember her like taking pictures of her lunch um, and we packaged it into like a cute story. I mean, it was Yahoo. So it certainly appealed to that kind of like slightly older audience of like, what is Betty White's secret to longevity? Um, so we just got access to all these really great people and started doing all these amazing social activations. And honestly, there weren't that many people. That was like 2012 to 2014. Um, it was just a really good time. Like that, there weren't that many people experimenting in the space. Um, and then I went to Livestrong. I worked for a couple of different Dick Clark productions, um, Kick, which is like a mobile app for teenagers, um, did a bunch of work for, for different people. I went to work at Livestrong. It was a health and fitness site. When I joined, it was very, um, uh, you know, I, like the fitness and the wellness world can be very white. Yeah. Um, it can be very, um, also sort of not body positive, for example. Um, so there was like a lot of just a very kind of stereotypical skinny white woman from Los Angeles. And essentially what I saw my role was trying to reflect more the audience that we had. And I started on social and when I joined them, I was just doing their social, but it was try trying to make sure that all the social channels kind of reflected who our audience was. And then back ending that into working with all the editors on the site, um, I ultimately ended up overseeing the editors on the site, which made it easier to kind of, sometimes it's easier to do things like cool stuff on social or to kind of brand yourself on social and back into the site, especially if it's a legacy website um, or a legacy media site, change can be very hard and internally people can be resistant to change. So I think if you're in charge of the social channels, you can kind of do more edgy stuff and push it further and then eventually the, the social channels start to influence the actual brand itself right. um, to make internal changes. And, and in, so in doing that, sorry, I yeah. have a question and oh, yeah, yeah. It'll, be, it'll sound weird if I ask it later. <laughs> um, yeah. So in doing that, did you find that um, proving, like using social analytics to prove to the editorial team and to other folks like that you were working with that like, hey, here is what's doing well and how we're getting responses to this content that's more body positive and more diverse on social. Like we should be reflecting that. Like how did you go about navigating those conversations? Because those are really co tough conversations to have when um, 
you know, content is something that a lot of people who, like most of us who are working on it, hold it pretty near and dear to our hearts. So you also don't want to go in like guns a blazing and get nothing done because now you've made everyone's like, you know, pricklies go up. Um, yeah. And that's a good question. So I'm, I'm not a guns a blazing type of person. Um, so, you know, I always look for, um, I want to achieve my goals, but I want to achieve it in like the most effective way possible. And in a way that brings everybody along. So really, I feel like the first six months that I was there, it was very stealth mode. And I would, I would change every single, I mean, just for example, at the time, especially Facebook, this was like a couple of years ago. So we had much better organic reach and impressions on Facebook, but I changed every single Facebook photo. Like I took the time to go find alternate photos to put up on our Facebook posts because for example, the imagery on every single story was just so either so awful, so outdated, so out of touch with where I felt culture and society was going or who our audience was. So I would replace every single Facebook photo of an article with like something that I felt like was more relevant to the people that we were trying to serve. Um, and just our numbers started to grow. We were getting more uh, traffic. We were getting more engagement. Um, I just felt like I was getting a lot of feedback as well from internally from, you know, people in other divisions within the company of like, wow, our Facebook page looks really good. I love it. And if you click through, you were still getting the old imagery and, and you know, the content, the website looked kind of dated. Um, but at least I felt like I was making an impact on Facebook. And as our traffic started to grow and our engagement, um, it was easier to, to make suggestions, kind of like start dropping those those kind of hints of look how well this is performing and look how well people are responding to this. And it just happened in a much more kind of subtle way that didn't, because you're right, people get really defensive. And if you're like, hey, this is a much better way to do this. And especially if you're not in a position of power, you can't tell somebody above you, like you're doing it all wrong. Here's how you should do it. So I think you do, it is a little bit of like kind of subtly, planting the seeds and letting people see what's possible. Um, and then eventually, I feel like almost every company that I've worked at, especially having worked at Yahoo, for example, I mean, when you work at like legacy media sites, it's just things are done. However, they were done when the companies were founded 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and it's very hard to change. Um, but I think that if you just tend to your own little garden um, and kind of do the best job possible of what you have control over, I think that then you can start to kind of back into how to change the site and people's, people's perception, people's attitudes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sorry, sorry to throw you off track with, with that question. No, no, no. And I talk a lot and I talk fast. So feel free to just put up a hand and be like, whoa, slow down, or I have a question. Noted. Um, okay, so so from there, that's what you were sort of, uh, how you were helping Livestrong pivot directionally, visually. And then from there, like at what point sort of, because so much of your work is around influencer marketing, at what point did, did you start folding influencers into what you were doing? And like, uh, how did your career start to envelop influencers? So there had always been an element. I feel like my career has always uh, depended on 
someone or something being an influencer. Like there was always somebody, especially working in entertainment, you know, as I mentioned, like celebrities are kind of like the original influencers. They have a lot of impact. Um, and then just working, I would say probably like 2015, 2016, um, I worked a little bit with Dick Clark Productions and they very early on, they produced the Golden Globes, American Music Awards, Billboard Music Awards. Um, they very on early on kind of grasped the power of influencers and they were using Vine influencers um, to come to like if there was a show or to walk the red carpet. I produced like a Snapchat red carpet um, Snapchat, I guess, video. Uh, it was like a, a series on Snapchat and Casey Neistat was there and I was supposed to babysat, babysit Casey Neistat running around the red carpet. And at that point, and, and those were very early days where, you know, sometimes the influencers weren't even paid. It was just literally, you know, the fact that they were happy to be somewhere where there was a red carpet and they were running around with Britney Spears and, um, you know, whoever was there, One Direction, whoever was kind of like big at that time. Um, and so, you know, seeing from the celebrities and then those kind of early days of like Vine and YouTube stars. Um, and then while I was at Livestrong, I started working with fitness influencers. The thing with influencers is, especially if you don't have a paid marketing budget and I, we can get into money and I'm, I'm realizing I'm like backing into myself into a corner, but it's like, if you, if you don't have money to run paid ads and you're trying to make an impact, you have to look for different ways. Like how can I move the needle? Obviously you can be posting every day, doing the best work and make like tiny incremental gains. But it was looking at who is, is there a person or a partner that I can use to really like show a jump in traffic or show a jump, jump in engagement. Like what can I do? How can I leverage, you know, some, another account or another channel to kind of really help us move the needle here. Um, and so early on though, I do think all influencers and creators should be paid, but early on, for example, when I was at Livestrong, Facebook live had just launched. So this was like three or four years ago, Facebook live had just launched. And so there were micro influencers that wanted to be featured on our platform. I needed people to do Facebook lives and create content for us and expose us to these new audiences that I was trying to reach. And so we, we basically swapped for us exposure for them, uh, or I guess it was for them exposure for us, it was content and a new audience. I think that we have come a long way. This was very early on in influencer marketing. At this point, I don't really recommend trading exposure unless you're somebody that has you know, such a big account that really there is some sort of financial benefit for the creator or influencer, but it worked in that time. And I think that, you know, every, that worked at that time. I think you always have to look at like, okay, who are the influencers in the space right now? Like, is it celebrities? Is it lifestyle influencers? Is it entrepreneurs and founders that I think are becoming, you know, some of the big influencers now? Um, what are the platforms and features available to me and how can I make this work? And especially, you know, it's a matter of like, if, especially if you don't have a budget, it's like, how can I be creative? What can I give somebody else or trade with somebody else so that I can achieve my goals and they can achieve their goals? Does that? Yeah, that tracks. That makes a lot of sense. And I think one thing that I'm always curious about how uh, people talk to their clients, especially about influencer relationships is sort of because I've seen different approaches and mostly people from what I've seen tend to approach influencers and go, here's what our expectation is. And here's like the funds that we have to offer. Right. 
Um, and what I've really worked with some of my clients on, especially when it comes to longer term influencer relationships, is like, hey, you know, we already know this person is a good fit for our brand. What if we open up the conversation with them about like how what do you want to do? Like, is it something, is there something that you want to do on Twitch? Or is there this other muscle you want to flex to show like, hey, yeah, I know I mostly post about fitness stuff, but I'm also really into like whatever else, like science or whatever that looks like. And one of the things that I've run into sometimes is that their their agent a lot of times is like, hey, we don't really, you know, they don't pass that along because it's easier for the agent to, to just accept like, here's the four posts that we want for X amount of money and move on. So how have you navigated um, creating influencer relationships that are really impactful? Yeah, and I think that is such a good point that you bring up is moving away from very transactional, like here is money, you will post something and then we're done, um, to something that is much more impactful and meaningful. And I do agree if they have an agent or manager, you know, some influencers do, especially I think the, the you know, the larger their audience, the more likely they're going to have, uh, you know, an agent or manager who then has a rate sheet, who has things that they need to, you know, boxes that they need to check off. Um, that is the beauty. So I'll talk about, you know, micro influencers and then people that have agents and managers. Micro influencers, especially if they don't have managers, and a lot of them don't, um, it's building that relationship. And really, it, that's what it all comes down to. Like this entire phone call, we could just be like, it's about relationships. Like, be a good person, have, create deep and meaningful relationships, and then work on those relationships and maintain them and nurture them. Um, <laughs> you know, that's kind of like, that's the big, so people are like, what's the secret to influencer marketing? And that's what it is. It's relationships um, built, you know, following the person, uh, you know, whether, and this goes to both sides. Cause when I teach at UCLA, I really teach uh, their creators. It's not there are some marketers in the class, but it's essentially either aspiring or existing influencers. And so the relationship goes both ways, like as the brand, um, follow the influencer, support what they're doing, show up for the other projects that they have in their lives. Like you said, like start conversations and be like, hey, what are your goals? Like, what are the other things that you're trying to, maybe is there anything that you haven't done yet with another brand that you're interested in doing? Um, how can we bring you on in like a, a deeper, more meaningful way and work on something together? Um, and it, you know, the flip side too, talking to creators, when I'm advising creators, I'm like, if you're going to pitch a brand or try and, you know, get like a sponsorship, you better be following that brand. Um, you know, have liked some of their posts. Maybe you've mentioned them, for example, or at least, you know, if you're interested in a certain space, then make sure that you're following brands within that space. It doesn't have to be one particular company. Um, but, you know, just, just show an interest. Uh, and I think what we're seeing, which is really interesting, it just came out, I think it was in the past two weeks. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I think it's uh, Jennifer Aniston started working with Vital Proteins. Um, Fashionista did a really great story. There are four different celebrities that have now joined companies in much deeper roles than just a spokesperson, an influencer, a celebrity, you know, face to a campaign. Um, for example, I think Jennifer Aniston joined Vital Proteins as, I want to see it's like creative director. Um, and so, oh, cool. yes. And so there, I think it's like companies are also starting to understand, like, I want something deeper. I don't want her to just show up in an ad or in an Instagram post holding my product and say, you know, this is what they use. Um, they want it to, to have a, you know, 
really kind of like baking in that partnership or that relationship to a foundational level where it's like, maybe she is going to have a say on what their branding looks like. Maybe she's going to have a say on what new products they roll out, you know? And so I think that that is a really good example. Like if you're looking for, okay, how can we do this? Look at what some of these other companies are doing with either traditional celebrities or digital influencers. And is it giving them a say in, you know, a product, giving them a say in being able to design or collaborate if you're, you're bringing out like a physical product, can they be involved in that in some way? Um, You know, do you have any sort of like uh, ambassadorship or, or academy, um, anything that you can roll out that really kind of shows, like you said, like a much more deep, uh, and meaningful impact rather than just here it is, here's your $2,500. We need these four posts. Um, and, and, you know, just being really transactional about it. That's, and I guess I hadn't realized that your class is, uh, like teaching, from that standpoint, I thought it was sort of like social and influencer marketing for marketers. So that's really interesting. Well, okay. So I do take, I teach a paid social media marketing class. Mm -hmm. So the paid social media marketing class is very much for marketers. The class that I teach is for creators. Um, The irony is I'm, I teach this class for creators and aspiring creators. I still consult for brands right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm advising creators. I'm, I, it's funny to be on both sides of the fence because I'm advising creators and I'll tell them, like, I'm pushing them to try and get as much money as possible, as much, um, you know, protection for themselves and their art and whatever it is they're doing as creators. I'm simultaneously working with brands, not brands that work with those specific creators, right. but I'm working with brands and I'm trying to give brands advice on how to work with creators, but also like how to save money because everybody's nervous, like how much is it going to cost me? What can I do? And so, you know, I'm, I'm on both sides of the fence where I'm with brands. I'm like, okay, well maybe, you know, this is, you could arrange the deal this way. So it's most beneficial to you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I'm talking to creators and I'm like, okay, try arranging the deal this way. So it's most beneficial to you. Usually it's somewhere in the middle. Um, but I am talking, you know, I'm out of both sides of my mouth because I'm trying whoever it is, I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, they're best represented and their, whatever their goals or needs are objectives. Um, we're making sure that we're looking after that. Yeah. That, and that, that stuff is always really interesting because I've worked, it's, it's always fascinating, different, um, like people at at different brands and their perspective on what an influencer relationship means. And so oftentimes, and hopefully it's, I feel like it's changed at least in the last year and hopefully it continues to go this way is that I found a lot of brands have it in their head of, okay, whoever has the most, like we just need numbers, right? Like we want somebody, like I can think of a few influencers that I've worked with where it's like they had that, you know, 870,000 followers or whatever. And I've found that, um, because I've mostly worked at agencies, so you're sort of in between, right? Where you're like working with a brand, but then you're also working with influencers, but you're not their agent. And so it's like a very weird space to navigate. Like, who do I, like, do I push on my client to be like, no, actually you could pay less money and have more impact with somebody whose audience is like really engaged versus, you know, trying to get a sort of, generic lifestyle influencer is not going to typically move the needle on something 
like somebody who's more niche and focused and like has a really clear image does. And so how have you navigated those conversations with brands to steer towards more impactful relationships with influencers and away from the numbers game? Honestly, if there was one thing I would say is like, especially when I'm talking to creators, I'm like, don't worry about growing your audience, grow your engagement, like follower count. It really doesn't matter. Um, You almost want to ditch those followers that are not engaging with you. If you could do anything, drop followers so that your engagement rate goes up. Like that is the most important thing. And then also talking to the brands that I'm working with and trying to help them understand that, like you said, the follower count does not matter. It is the engagement rate and the conversion rate. So, you know, we all know that they're not reaching those 850,000 followers. They're reaching, you know, depending on who they are, whether it's like 200,000, if they're lucky, maybe 100,000, maybe 50,000 people out of those 50,000 people that they're reaching, there's maybe you know, 20,000 that are engaging with them out of the 20,000 that are engaging with them, you know, it's maybe like a one to 2% conversion rate. So you have to look at, it's way more important. You got to look at it one of two ways. You either have to hope that they have 10 million followers so that by the time you get to the conversion rate, it's high enough, but you have to be able to afford that person. Or you've got to look for somebody with a super small and engaged audience that is very much within your niche. Um, And when I say niche, it's like, it's not just a food influencer, but it's a food influencer that appeals to moms with toddlers um, who lives in a certain area and does product reviews. Because for example, you always, you know, every influencer has a different relationship with their audience. And so some influencers are really great at, Um, providing recipes, like the audience comes to them looking for recipes to make, you know, when they're, when they're too busy to cook, for example, some people uh, would look to a food influencer, for example, for product recommendations, some people are going to look to them for just pretty photos. And the person that does either like recipes or pretty photos might not be that person that drives conversions, because that's just not the audience expectation. So you have to look at like, what does the audience expect from them? Where, how do they engage? And I was working with an influencer recently and actually was giving her that recommendation. If you're going to want to start to sell product, if all of a sudden you're going to introduce, like you know that you're going to introduce a product line soon and you want to start selling it, you haven't done any product recommendations. You haven't tried to drive any sales previously. This is going to be very out of left field. And, you know, audiences, online audiences, brands, everybody, everybody is like likes familiarity, predictability, and consistency. Um, And so if all of a sudden you start throwing something out there, you know, you're probably not going to make an impact. It's going to take a while for you to build up that type of the recognition and relationship with your audience. So start introducing the idea of, you know, maybe you're not ready to start selling your product just yet, but start doing product reviews or recommendations. So people start to expect that from you and understand you know, you've got to put in a call to action and like, what is the action you want them to take? And if it's, you know, if you want to set up almost like an affiliate program or something like that, so people start to get used to you recommending products so that then when you're ready to launch your own line, it's not out of left field for them. And they're not like, oh, I really only come to you for recipes. I do my shopping by following this other influencer. So it's like influencers, not one size fits all. So I think, you know, also helping influencers understand how to position themselves so that whatever goal it is that they have, they're building that relationship with their audience. And then also helping brands understand that somebody might have a million followers, 
but if they have a million followers because they post really, you know, like thirst trap bikini photos, um, those people are not going to buy your like pet toys or whatever it is, right. you know, it's, it's, um, it's just understanding what the relationship is and what the expectations of the online audience is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's so interesting to me how, um, how, and you know, we're all guilty of it, but I've found a lot of times there's some people that like show up to work and it's like, they can't put their consumer hat on. It's like, they think of the world especially when it comes to marketing and social media as like the way that they think people should behave. But if you ask them, Oh, will you follow whoever, right? Like you follow this person who mostly posts this. If they were to suddenly share like a cheese grater that they love, would you purchase it? And they're like, no, I would never do that. And you're like, so why do you think other people, (laughs) like why do you think other people would go do that? (laughs) Yes. Well, and it's funny. I was just talking to, I've been talking to a couple of influencers lately who are like, you know, maybe they're getting bored of whatever their niche is. And we've been talking about how they can transition to something else. And it's the same thing for them where I'm like, you're essentially, you're a small business and you sell, um, I'm trying to think of like, what do they sell? They sell like pet toys. I like the idea of pet toys. So like you sell (laughs) pet toys. If all of a sudden tomorrow you start selling restaurant meals or financial advice when everybody comes to you for pet toys like that's going to throw your audience off and you're going to have a really hard time you can maybe try and and pivot and like bridge that gap but you've got to do it slowly and it's like if you know levi's all of a sudden decided that they were tired and bored of selling jeans and tomorrow wanted to sell uh wine or rosé bottles or something like that, people will be like, no, we come to you for jeans. We don't come to you for rosé bottles. So it's the same thing trying to talk to influencers. Because I know, um, you know, some people, I think sometimes the line gets blurred between this is me and this is my friends and family and this is a representation of me. And no, really like I'm a persona, like I'm a brand and a product um, and I'm marketing, this is a business and I am marketing this business and I'm growing this business. And, you know, whatever it is, if you're going to be an influencer and you want to do it professionally, it's like you are now building a brand. And as we, like I said, you know, we don't, stores don't just change overnight and go from like selling jeans to selling rosé bottles. And in that same way, influencers, you can't just ditch whatever you're doing because you're bored of it and, you know, do a 180. Um, you can try and bring your audience along and and pivot, but you have to be really careful because people get used to you doing something and they like to, they love the consistency of you doing that over and over, even if as a creator or influencer, it's driving you crazy. Totally. Yeah. I think also uh, for influencers to be patient because I know a lot of people sort of expect a certain level of engagement, like if they're doing a poll, right? Like with your example of financial advice, it's like, okay, maybe test the water and do a poll or share that you're, you know, taking an online class or share that you have been like doing X, Y, and Z with Robin Hood or whatever, and then gauge the interest and, and don't be disheartened. Like, I think it's hard for a lot of people because so many, especially if you're an influencer, a lot of influencers um, sort of self-worth and ego is tied up in their, in their personal social engagement. And so it can be really frustrating when they don't see that same level of engagement on something that like means a lot to them as they do when they're posting bikini photos or, you know, gym photos or whatever, like 
that can be really disheartening for people. And so I think, I don't know, I just, I feel for um, people that are influencers because that kind of thing can be so disheartening when you've put your heart and soul into something. And then people are like, no, 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 we just want you to put on makeup. <laughs> no, we don't want any of this. We just want to see you for the reason we followed you. And I, I feel for people because that psychologically can't be healthy. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to separate yourself as a product and look at your like there's me the person and then there's me the product and me the product is really what i'm selling on instagram um and so yeah it's it's uh, i've been reading uh the lean startup because essentially i'm looking at influencers as they are you know entrepreneurs founders of their own little small business they are the business they're the founder and they're the business itself so i've been reading the lean startup and you know what you're saying is sort of like with running polls and stuff it's like the um what is it build measure learn or is it build learn measure kind of thing it's like yeah like you start putting out those signals and see how people are responding um and it's got to be somewhere in the middle in the venn diagram of what you want to post and what the audience expectations are. Yeah, it's essentially it's essentially a mini focus group, right. you know, of like, which e even better than a typical focus group, like you specifically have your, you know, quote unquote, like customers yes. there that they don't know that they're being tested, but you get a sense of like, okay, now I know that they engage with this or like maybe, you know, they seem to care more about it on during like this time of the year or whatever that looks like. So. I'm glad you mentioned the um, the book that you're reading because one of my next questions was actually, uh, so being an adjunct professor, you have to, if I'm not mistaken, because my dad's an adjunct professor, but um, what he teaches is a little bit different. He teaches economics courses. Okay. Um, so you have to develop, you know, a syllabus every semester um, or quarter, depending on how UCLA does their, I think semester, right? Yeah. They're on the semester system. Okay. So... It must be, I mean, I know working in social media that it's like after you've done it for a while and the wheels are greased, you know where to look and like how to pull together that information to stay on top of things. But in terms of like really, because you're put in a position where it's not as like nebulous as with a lot of us where it's like, oh, I know what I'm learning and I'm just sort of staying with it. Like you have to put it in writing for your class. Um, and so do you find yourself having to reassess the syllabus like pretty often and um and then for people who took your class like a year ago is there somewhere that like do they follow you on social to stay up to date just because stuff does change so i'm just curious like what your approach is to your to your class yes um that is a really good question and the class i have to update the syllabus every semester um and sometimes during the semester, I'm changing slides, for example, or, you know, whatever's on the recommended, like the reading um, that they have to do or kind of recommended readings or podcasts that they have to listen to. Um, yeah, it's, it's honestly, that has probably been more work than I anticipated because there is that idea that like, if you build out a syllabus, you build out a curriculum, um, you have a syllabus, then, you know, you're not meant to reinvent the wheel every semester. You're sort of, you can rely on, it's a really heavy lift at the beginning. Um, and then you can kind of rely on teaching these, these foundational elements each semester with maybe like minor updates. Um, with social, it is hard. I mean, of course, there are some things that are just kind of basic and foundational, but yeah, for the most part, like every time there's a new platform, for example, like the first, the very first class that I taught, 
uh, I don't think TikTok was out yet. So there was no mention of TikTok and it, it wasn't even a blip on the radar. Then about two years ago, TikTok came out um, and I thought it was a lot of fun. But two years ago, it was like, it was literally five minutes out of the entire class. Like, oh, you guys might want to check out. There's this new app. It's really interesting. Um, you know, take a look and see what people are doing on that in that space uh, to now having a guest speaker come in who works at TikTok, but is also a TikTok influencer herself and talking about, you know, how to create a content strategy for TikTok, for example. Um, so it is continually evolving. Um, and... <laughs> so yeah, I, there's no, there's no really easy answer. It's not like, um, just set it and forget it. There is no way it's to say like, you know, it's, it's easy. It's not easy. It's like continually updating, continually reading, um, and continually also changing my approach in terms of the way that I look at creators and influencers. Like I said, I'm reading a bunch of, you know, either like entrepreneur, startup, small business books right now. I'm getting very invested in that. Um, because that's kind of the the shift that I'm seeing with uh, influencers is it's, uh, you know, founders and entrepreneurs have always been influencers of sorts, um, but now starting to see every influencer as its own little mini business um, and looking at, for example, so if you're an influencer and you get paid for sponsored content, that's your customer. Um, but is it your end user? Your end user is really your audience and your followers, that's who you're showing up for every single day, but you're paid by brands. So kind of understanding um, that's actually, I'm, I'm developing a new class that's a little bit more of an advanced version of influencer marketing. It's the business of being an influencer and helping them understand how to position themselves and see themselves kind of in a more um, in light of entrepreneurship and, and building a business, um, which is essentially what they're doing. So uh, yeah. That's, it's, you know, it's just continually reading and updating yourself in terms of, you know, older students or, or students I've had, you know, in classes previous. Um, yeah, a lot of them connect with me on LinkedIn. We stay in touch. One of them um, I'm working pretty closely with right now um, on, on some different projects that I'm helping her with, and she's helping me with some, some projects. Um, but you know, it's funny, I keep thinking like, how do I keep track of all these people? Because I would love to have them all in one space. But I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this lately is whether having like, do I have a newsletter? Do I have a Facebook group? If it's a Facebook group, is anybody on Facebook? Because a lot of these people, you know, they're either like late, late teens, early 20s, and they don't necessarily have Facebook accounts. So you know, will they actually show up to Facebook? Like, is there a value to having a Facebook group, for example, for all the alumni of people that have gone on to do different things? So um, yeah, that's a, actually a really good question. One that I have not solved yet just because of the ever evolving landscape of social. Media. Yeah, the ever moving under our feet. Yes. <laughs> Escaping us landscape. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've, um, I actually have found you know, if you can get people on it, that discord has been really terrific for different, I, I'm like, uh, there's a Patreon I subscribe to called Water and Music. I don't know if you follow her, her name's Sherry Hugh. And her work is really terrific. And it's all it's, I mean, it's just everything music industry related. So like, um, gaming and music and um, publishing and licensing and just live streaming, like everything music. 
and she does such a terrific job. And for when you subscribe to her Patreon, there's like a special invite link to be part of the Discord. And I've just found it wildly helpful, you know, because it's set, it's set up so much like Slack that you can have different channels for different things. So like, because I'm in a band, right? Like I care about more of the artist stuff than I really care about. Um, like I care about publishing and licensing, but I care more about what I can be doing for my band to get more eyeballs on like our music videos and things like that. So I do wonder if it, especially because Facebook adoption is tricky and then you also have, and, and Facebook's so hard. Like if you're not on Facebook, like do you really want to open yourself up to all these Facebook requests? And then you're, if you're an influencer, like these fans finding your Facebook and then you feel this obligation to keep it up or whatever, that that Discord might be, you know, a helpful kind of way, especially for anybody who's into gaming, like they're probably on Discord already. Yes, I've done um, a couple. I actually did a couple of sessions this year. I worked with Riot Games, helping some of their oh, like, yeah. pro esports players. Um, that was like around personal branding and their own social media, especially as they were growing. Good. Um, yeah, and I, honestly, it was probably the most fun I've had all year was working with Riot and working with these gamers. Um, but we did do, I did do a couple of workshops. So some of the sessions were one-on-one -on -one and I did those via Zoom, but then I did a workshop um, that they wanted to do on Discord. Cause of course, you know, with gaming, that's where everybody is. Um, and I had not done, I knew Discord as, you know, threads in just like mm -hmm. the, te the text-based side of Discord. Um, and so I wasn't really, and you know, I wasn't as aware that essentially they have like a a product that's a lot like zoom and so you're able to um you know do these video workshops on discord yeah um so that was yeah that was good that was a learning experience for me i wasn't um that familiar with it so i feel like now uh a lot more a lot more comfortable yeah that actually i I will say that I learned more from, because I used to work on a client that was a um, major sponsor of League of Legends, like contests and, and championships and stuff. So getting to work on that and then work with a lot of the um, League of Legends influencers taught me so much about Discord and just so many other, so many other pockets of the internet that I sort of like knew about in passing, but hadn't dove into. And then I was like, oh, I like really need to know what I'm talking about because I can't, you know, I can't. I can't bring myself to sort of like BS my way through that kind of thing. There's yes. certain things that I'm like, no, I really need to know the ins and outs of this. Um, and so that was like one area that was super fun to learn about and just getting to really explore the different pockets of Twitch and how people engage on there and the different um, audiences and just the different ways that people like to watch, you know, the different types of ways that people like to watch streamers is really fascinating. Um, so that's super fun. I think that gaming is probably, and esports is like probably one of my favorite categories because it is just so, there's just so much that you can do with it and there's so much room to play. Yes. Which I love. And it's very different. I'm very used to working with Instagram influencers. And so, um, yeah, like you said, when I was working with Riot, it was like really having to immerse myself in Twitch and Discord and understand what I was talking about and even changing my examples of, you know, branding and like how you brand yourself and looking at who does a good job at branding and understanding, you know, they all wanted to know like, okay, if I'm on Twitter, who should I be following on Twitter that does a great job as a gamer um, tweeting and just understanding like who's in the space and who's doing a great job. So yeah. That's so fun. How did you start with teaching? Like how did that 
I guess not transition because you didn't necessarily transition. You like added it onto your full plate. <laughs> um, so how did that come about? It was actually kind of a fluke. I wish I could say it was more intentional. And I've talked to a lot of people who are like, oh, I'd love to, to teach. And I actually never thought about teaching. I have um, a friend of mine uh, was connected with somebody at UCLA. They had a teacher drop out with four days to go until the semester started. And so oh. they reached out to my friend and said, listen, we would love to have you come in. She was also doing work in influence the marketing space. And they were like, we would love to have you come in, teach a class. If you want to co-teach it because it starts in four days and it would be a lot to develop a curriculum, um, like essentially from scratch in four days, do you want to bring on somebody else? And so she brought me in with her. And for four days, she and I like brainstormed enough to get past the first three classes so that we could like, we were scrambling every week to try and like catch up and create, build out the syllabus um, and the curriculum like over the semester. And so wow. we just had so much fun. I mean, when we get together, like we just, we like to nerd out about that stuff. And um, it's just something that we would talk about normal. We've been coworkers before. We just find social and influencer marketing just like really fascinating. And so, you know, that first semester, I often wonder from the student's perspective, like a lot of it was just me and her talking about our experiences and campaigns that we were working on. Um, and so it was definitely, I would say a little less structured and a little more kind of free flowing. Um, and then after that, you know, like we were able to take a breath after that semester and they invited us to come back. And so, you know, we had a little bit more time. She has since, it was, you know, she's since uh, stepped back and is not teaching the class anymore. Um, but, you know, I still call her and we still talk about it. And I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? Or what would be a great exercise? Or um, so, yeah, it was, and now I love it. It's honestly, uh, I love teaching. I never thought about it. It was never something that I thought like, oh, I want to be a teacher. Um, now that I'm doing it, I love it. I love working with students. They're so, they're so excited and they're so interested. And also, you know, like I said, they're all of a certain generation that like they really get social and they're really into yeah. like testing new apps and trying things and, you know, seeing what works and what doesn't. And, um, it's just, it's like really refreshing to work with them. And especially when you find the kids who get it, like there's always like a couple of kids, you know, everybody is great. And I love, I love all the students, but there's every semester, there's always like one or two that you can tell have like crazy potential um, and are just like really exciting and charged and energized and just working with them and seeing and knowing that like, you know, 10, 15 years from now, I might be working for them because they are just so off the charts, like creative or, or smart or, you know, magnetic or whatever. Um, charismatic is just, I don't know. It's just like, it, it, it's like a high, like every time I do a class, it's like having a high and then cut like after the class, I'm just like, I'm just all amped up and um, yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. That's so it's, it's funny. So now because of the pandemic, my, my dad, obviously all of his classes have been moved to online and, um, and you know, there's like a, because I, I'd mentioned to you on like a personal note before we started recording and I don't think I've ever brought it up on this podcast before, but that um, I live with my dad and my grandma and we sort of like look out for my, for my grandma and um, who just turned 90, which is very exciting. <laughs> and um, I can hear him teaching his class on Saturday mornings, like on the other side of the wall. 
And it's so funny because he gets like so excited teaching that I can hear him like slamming his desk with his hands, you know, like as it's <laughs> so, like, it's just really lovely because as his daughter, like I don't see him, like I see him get excited on occasion, but I don't really get to see that side of him very much. Like you don't really get to see your parents through other people's eyes ever right. because obviously they're engaging with us like as the kid that they see all the time. And and I'm an adult, so it's like not very fun anymore, right? Like I'm 31, so it's not like it's not like we're like going on hikes and camping and going scuba diving anymore. And like my fascination with life isn't normally like in like engaged in like whatever he and I are talking about. <laughs> and so it's just so fun to like hear him and how excited he is. And like you know, he has his jokes are so badly, and they're so they're like. God, they're like painful dad jokes. It's yeah. like a constant reiteration of like, well, I guess you had to be there. But like for him to have an audience, <laughs> just an like, appreciative audience. Yes, it's totally. very strange that like our workspaces and our personal spaces have now merged. And I always mm -hmm. wonder, so I do all of my classes now that I'm teaching from home. I do all my classes in my bedroom because it's just like the mm -hmm. back of the house and it's the quietest place, but I'll have the window open. And I always wonder like, what do my neighbors think? Like for three <laughs> hours, I'm just going on and on about influencer marketing and posi brand positioning and, you know, monetization and growth opportunities. And I just, yes, I do wonder if they're just like, is it just for fun? Like, what is she doing? What is this all about? So that's, yeah, I, I love that you can hear your dad and like you hear that enthusiasm. It is, and I've learned so much about him. Like he's done so many like lovely things that I had no idea that he's done. Like I'll just hear him tell stories and I'm like, wait, you did what for like World War II vets in Orange County? Like, and it's just like really sweet stuff that I'm like, dad, how come I didn't know? And he's like, well, I don't know. It just never came up. And like, and I'm like, oh, that's so nice. That is like it's a really. Silver lining to this year. It's a, for a horrible year that the silver lining I think has been getting to know our families intimately um yeah at home and like uh, knowing more than we maybe ever hope to know about them <laughs> yes totally it is really nice and it it's actually made me go like oh be like teaching because that side of my family like my my grandmother and grandfather met because she was his teacher like at like a business school thing that he had to go to and she was his teacher at this like five week immersive program so and then i have my goodness, let me think. Yeah, my, my dad, his brother, and his other sister. So of the five kids, three of them are teachers. That's amazing. Um, so I, and I used to like just not get it. I'd be like, oh, okay. You know, I guess my uncle really likes biology because he's like the dean of science at like a school. All right. <laughs> but like now I'm like, oh, it is really fun and it's really rewarding. And, um, and it's actually made me like, consider teaching because people have asked me before like have, and I'm like no 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 I have a podcast that's enough if you want to learn stuff they could listen to my podcast or like hire me to teach but it has really opened my eyes like oh this is actually really rewarding and enjoyable and it works out your own brain yes and I, I feel for every I think back to like every class I was ever in and like the times that I was an asshole and I sat in the back of the class and I fell asleep and I was like <laughs> oh god I felt I feel so bad for that teacher but then there were other classes where I was that student that was like super into it and really connected to yeah. the teacher and I'm like wow, yes, I get it now. It's like, it's such a rewarding feeling when somebody really gets it and you're able to help them. And that's like, 
I don't know, the democratization of education and the importance of like access to information are just things like I feel really strongly about. So it's like, I so in addition to teaching, I also do a lot of volunteering, like to do volunteer workshops for like nonprofits or pretty much anybody that needs help in either like the social or, you know, influencer marketing space or, you know, actually I'd probably do anything if somebody asked me, but it's just like that idea of like, I do love it. So it's like, I love that I'm doing it for UCLA, but then I do, I do also try to do it for other people who, you know, maybe not can't necessarily, you know, whether for resources or whatever reasons that they're not at UCLA, it's like, you know, working with everyone because I think it is really important that like that access to information um, and just the feeling of it's like a double sided, you know, like I do it to help, but I also get so much out of it because the people who do get it and who do respond and connect with you, it's just like such a good feeling. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. Um, so I'm trying to think, I feel like we've covered so much ground. Oh, actually one thing that I would love for you to elaborate on is the American Influencer Council and like what it is and what you do with them. Yes. So they launched, I think it was last summer. I follow a couple of the member, the founding members on Twitter and just all of a sudden saw them talking about what they, you know, they were involved in this like American Influencer Council. Um, and I was like, wow, like, like you, my reaction was like, oh, that's really interesting. Now that I've seen it mentioned, like, of course, this makes so much sense. Um, it's a, um, and I want to get it right. It's a trade organization. So they have, um, you know, kind of these founding principles of trying to, um, they want to quantify the value uh, of influencers, um, help with the reputation of influence. So like sometimes influencers can be a really dirty word. So sometimes, you know, people roll their eyes like, uh, influencers. Um, and especially there are a couple of influencers that we all know that are in the headlines that do these terrible things, but that's not representative of the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, about kind of helping the, the, the positioning of influencers like within within news media within the business world for example they also work with the FTC to try and standardize a lot of it is trying to standardize both with the social platforms and with the federal trade commission oh, yeah. um you know disclosures for example making sure that like everything the disclosures of when you're doing sponsored content the enforcement of those disclosures, um, making sure that there's consistency across the platforms in working with influencers and how influencers need to disclose, you know, what it is they're doing with these paid partnerships. Um, and I know they're working with brands as well in kind of trying to be a bridge a little bit like, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a little bit, you know, too, when you work working at the agency is like being a bridge between influencers and brands and making sure that, you know, both sides are being heard and everybody's, everybody has a seat at the table and is able to, you know, do it in the most equitable way. Mm -hmm. And so I had just reached out and was like, I think it's really smart. I love what you guys are doing. Um, they had spoken at a couple of different, uh, I think a couple of different universities um, and were doing some sort of like, you know, lunch and learn type talks on, um, on Instagram. They were doing where they would have like the founding members and different creators would come on and talk about what they were doing. Um, and so I just reached out and I was like, I love what you're doing. I think it's really smart. Let me know if you need help. And so, um, yeah, we've just kind of kept up a conversation. I had uh, the executive director, um, come talk to one of my classes during the fall. 
Um, and I'm kind of working with them on seeing how I can incorporate them into the class. Cause I just think it's really important, uh, that it becomes, it is a viable, it, I mean, it's an industry now it's not going anywhere. People keep saying is influencer marketing dead. And it's like, no, it's not. There are always going to be influencers, no matter who they are, the, the definition or the, the picture of who an influencer is might change, but it's not mm -hmm. going anywhere. It's a growing industry. I think it's supposed to be 15 billion worth 15 billion, um, in the next two years. Wow. So, you know, they're really trying to kind of standardize and, and apply like, you know, processes and structure to the industry um, that everyone can follow. And uh, I just like that they're legitimizing what a lot of people are very dismissive about, which is like, oh, influencers, it's just people that take selfies and that's all there is to it. And it's a waste of money and it's ridiculous. Um, and they're kind of dispelling that notion and trying to just set up more framework around the influencer marketing industry. Yeah, which is really, it's really good to know because also I think, you know, people talk about it in that way, but what I think a lot of people don't realize is that the way that people speak about influencers and social media marketing as a whole really impacts the way that we are um, as practitioners of, you know, those like crafts, I suppose, um, really impacts the way that we are um, not just treated, but also like valued in the workplace. And so many times, like there's some companies that really get it. And, but even within those companies, there's people at those companies that don't get it. Right. And so not only are you sort of dismissed with like your opinions, because for whatever reason, I guess if you specialize in social, your opinion counts less than if, than if you're like in literally any other department <laughs> a lot of times and it impacts our paychecks. And so it can be, you know, for the most part now, a lot of people have moved away from having interns manage social, but that was an uphill battle for, you know, when you're on the receiving end of measly paychecks, it feels like a much longer time than it probably was. But it is really, I think it's really important because it, it is really interesting and tricky. I know I, I saw something on Twitter the other day where someone was talking about how like social media social media managers are like the next CMOs. And I was like, yeah. And the only thing stopping us from yes. being that are CMOs because, or not CMO. Yeah. Chief market. Yeah. CMOs because so many times, like when I have applied or been in conversations, like even for a promotion internally at a company and gone like, okay, I can like flex this marketing muscles in more way than more ways than just social media. Like it's fascinating that like I could be considered, you know, not um, qualified to be like a manager of digital marketing because I've been mostly focused on social, but then somebody whose background is largely in search could be my boss. Like that to me is baffling because I'm also like, yeah, there's only, I mean, the longer we go on, the more there are those of us with 10, 15 years of experience but to take the stance of like, oh, but you only have seven or eight years of experience. And I'm like, yeah, of something that's changing all the time, right? Like when I think about other parts of marketing, typically, like a lot of those haven't changed that much, yet those people are qualified to be our bosses. But those of us that have had to like basically change everything about everything that we do <laughs> all the time, every day magically I'm not qualified to do that. It's like you, you can't fathom that I could possibly understand things outside of social that are still marketing. Like, what do you think we were taught yeah, in school? It's so short-sighted. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, 
I mean, honestly, I think now there's also that idea of like, you know, people, like you said, like in silo, in social getting kind of siloed. And it's like, if you are, um, a marketer, for example, like that whole, I, I think that we're going to have to change that whole concept because it's like, you should know social, you should have an understanding of SEO, whether or not you're an SEO expert, because I think obviously if you're, you know, there's like people that specialize in that, but it's like, you should, if you're in social, you probably know some SEO in some capacity, totally. you know, social, you know, PR, you understand PR and you understand the value and you should probably practice some version of it. You're also almost like, you know, business development and partnerships, because if you're having, for example, like social partnerships, when we were doing link swapping with other um, media publishers and stuff. So it's like, there's so many when you're in just social, like there are so many elements of the business that you touch that is beyond just social media. And I think, yeah, it's, it's that whole legacy, you know, kind of mindset of, well, this isn't what, whatever marketing was 20 or 30 years ago. And it's just, yeah, it's really short-sighted. And I think there is, I think we are going to see a shift, but like you said, when you're on the receiving end of a small paycheck associated because there's less value placed on your role, I can see how it's probably really frustrating. Um, whereas all of a sudden one day we will look back and it'll be like, oh, it was just a blip where we changed from <laughs> old school marketing to new school marketing. And, you know. Yeah. And I, I feel for, because I've always been pretty... I'm probably a lot more vocal than a lot of um, people that I've worked with. And I, I just remember like the amount of coworkers that I've had in social who like didn't want our bosses to find out that they were, they couldn't make 7 PM meetings because they had a second job bartending because their job at like a corporation wasn't paying them enough. Right. Where is it? Which is baffling where you're like, Oh my gosh, you're like, you know, a college graduate, you have a job at a company that's like supposedly known for paying people well and taking care of its employees. But because you're on the social team, like if you were on any other team, <laughs> you'd be making a decent amount of money. But because you're on social, you have to work a second job for 20 hours a week bartending to make ends meet. And like, we all know that if we were to tell our bosses that they would be horrified and we'd be, it would be like frowned upon at our work if they saw us also bartending or doing other jobs on the weekends. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I feel for them because I'm like, oh, I know that a lot of times I've gotten paid better or treated better because I am louder. Um, I'm sure sometimes it has not served me well. But I, but there's other times that I'm like, oh yeah, it's because I nagged people and went like, yeah, you're right. I'm not available because I am dog sitting on weekends. So no, I can't, you know, do X, Y, and Z, or like I'm picking up extra freelance work because uh, I hate to break it to you, but 62,000 isn't a lot in San Francisco. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, that whole, well, the value of, you know, workers and, and how people are compensated. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast, but I think that, that um, that's going to be really interesting, especially now that we're talking about, you know, that whole conversation of like, if you don't live in the city that you work in, you know, should your compensation be adjusted um, versus like, how much is it costing you to, for internet at home, for, you know, the setup, for all of the, the light, the electricity and heating and all of the things that like come with working at home. So yeah, I, I think that's going to be really interesting. There are some interesting times ahead because I just don't think, like you said, the current model is not necessarily working 
best, but there's always pain and upheaval, like in the upheaval of, you know, going from an old system to a new system. Yeah, definitely. One one thing that comes to mind that like made me laugh when I first started because I I stopped working like in-house at companies like probably almost 2 years ago and I hadn't I realized that I hadn't really had to buy tampons in like 2 or 3 years because the office was always stuck. <laughs> For me it was the snacks. Like yes. not having the like constant supply of like bananas and um whatever you know like pretzels or like nuts like there was always a you know nut dispenser with like pistachios or whatever and not having that or my tea bags like having to buy my own tea (laughs) i was like oh this sucks Um, yeah at the same time though because i you know i there has been a lot of talks of like oh do we need to pay people and i know that reddit has actually decided to pay people the same no matter what city they're living in and one thing that i think about is like actually the company is saving a ton of money by not having to have an office so much so like yes the, (laughs) the overhead that they are now being able to eliminate is massive so the idea i mean it's just greed like that's the biggest problem right now is just greed and that you know screwing over workers um and and you see layoffs i mean we're seeing everybody like every all the companies like every industry every company is doing layoffs and then there was somebody I, i wish i could remember the name i was reading today where they're like they just laid off a bunch of people but they just had a really strong like their best quarter ever and i'm like like, I just, I don't know. I have a really hard time. That's not necessarily my area of expertise. So maybe that's why I don't understand it, but it just seems like corporate greed, which has been growing for the past 20 years. is just like out of control. And that idea of we're going to cut our overhead. We're not going to have to rent this office space. Um, we're not going to have to have like facilities people and all of the things that come in with having an office, but we want to pay our employees less. I just don't get it. Like, it's just, it's yeah. terrible. I agree. It's baffling. Yeah. Um, so I have just, I think, just a few more questions. So you do have a son and, yes. you know, you're probably a lot more digitally savvy than a lot of parents out there. Um, how do you talk to your son about him using social media? And like, does he have aspirations to be an influencer? Um, <laughs> yes, I would say, does he have aspirations? Like he has been on YouTube probably for like three or four years. Um, the way that I look at it is I would rather he be on social platforms with my supervision than I tell him he can't be on social, which is kind of hypocritical because that's essentially the space that I work in. Um, so to tell him like, you can't have an iPhone or, or not an iPhone, but any kind of like, you know, smartphone, you can't have a smartphone or you can't have screen time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't be on these social platforms. Uh, would make no sense. I also think that it's the future. Obviously, there have to be limits. I don't want anybody freaking out being like, you should never give a kid unlimited screen time or like you should never let them be on these platforms. Um, Yes, there are definitely oversights, but the way that I see it is that like he's on there, but he's on there with my supervision. And so he's been on TikTok probably for two years, um, but we sit down and we watch TikTok together. And, you know, I look at what his feed is like, because obviously everybody's For You page is very different. So sometimes I will see that his For You page is kind of like trending in what I think is a 
disturbing direction. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. There is definitely a lot of misogyny, but the thing is at this point he's 11. So I feel like I get to influence him for maybe another two years. Mm -hmm. And then like at 13, he's going to do what he wants anyway. I want him to have to be developing critical thinking skills when he's looking at social media. Um, as an, you know, 10, 11 year old, I want to watch it with him. And we want to talk about like, oh, why would this person say, I mean, there's some stuff that I'm just like, okay, no, block that from your phone. You know, just say you don't want to see any more of this type of content. That's like, there are certain things that are just like, you know, if it's like too, you know, like sexually, I mean, he's 11. So like anything that's like sexually provocative or anything that's like, um, you know, just like super hardcore, inappropriate or offensive. But then there's other things where it's like, if somebody's making fun of somebody else and we just talk about it and we talk about like, why is this person doing this? And why might be the, the, they be doing this? and um, you know, who, who gets their point of view across and has the other person had a chance to respond or like, how would you feel if somebody did this to you? Um, and so we talk about it and I think that's really important. And I, you know, like I said, they become teenagers. They're not going to, you're going to have very little input into like their life, their digital habits, their viewing habits. Um, and you can't wait until that moment to all of a sudden try and supervise what they're doing and what they're watching and then set limits. Right. I think it's better to do it early on and, you know, watch YouTube together. He has, he was on Twitter at one point. Um, when he was younger, I would say like, he probably joined social media when he was like eight or nine. I did go in at that point and put all of his accounts on private, which he didn't realize, but I went into his setting. Like I have his username and password for every social account. I monitor who reaches out, like nobody reaches out to him because most of his accounts are private, which he didn't realize at the time. I think now he's probably smarter and has an idea, but at the time he'd be like, I don't know, nobody follows me. And I'm like, I don't know, buddy. I don't know why, but it was because all the accounts were private. Um, but at least I could like, you know, supervise the accounts, talk to him about what he was watching. Now we're starting to open it up. We're like, yes, people follow him on TikTok, but we will go through and we'll review like who's following him. And if they're grown ups, I'll like suggest blocking them because if it's just somebody that seems like untrustworthy. Um, so I just think, I don't know, to me, education and working on it together and understanding what your kids are doing is just uh, really important to like developing those critical thinking skills and, and media consumption, media literacy skills. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's, um, it's really interesting to see how different parents navigate it. And one of my close friends, she has, I think her oldest is like 25 or just turned 26. And then she has a 15 year old and a 10 year old. And it's just so interesting because the 10 year old's really into gaming. So his user habits are like so different than the other two which are girls who are like not that into gaming and it's just and they all three have such different personality types where like the oldest like never really cared that much about having an instagram or anything like that and then she did get it and like was totally fine with her mom looking through her messages and then the middle one's like oh my gosh please don't look at my messages you know and so it is really interesting to navigate and i think to your point like it really like when I look at my friends who they didn't really get online until college, like they're the way that they engage with social is so different than how I do. And like the way that they internalize it is so different just because like I was online, like in AOL chat rooms at like nine or 10 years old, you know, which is like, by no means do I think that's healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But like, I don't know. I was like, well, they're there. Why not? And no one was really paying attention. So 
why not? And then I was on LiveJournal and Zanga and like school scandals, which was like a big deal when I was in junior high. And it's just so interesting because like I really like I don't put a lot of investment into like what I put on social, like on occasion, you know, who among us isn't bummed if we share something we're excited about and like no one responds. Right. But then I also am like, "Eh, could be the algorithm. Who knows? Maybe nobody saw it. Like, I don't know. And does it really matter? So, but it's interesting because it doesn't really occupy that much headspace for me. And if someone doesn't like follow me back, it doesn't really bother me. Like I don't really think much of it, but then I see folks who like haven't really been online that much until like they were kind of late adopters. And a lot of times people are like really emotionally distraught over like, you know, just stuff like, you know, nobody answered my poll. And I'm like, who cares? I'm like putting it, (laughs) like I put a poll up and it's more because I think it's funny than it is that I like really want someone's opinion. (laughs) And so it's just really, I think it's healthy for kids to have that experience earlier on to get used to it and understand like what sort of like the norms are on different channels and like, oh, this is how we behave here. But then we show up here and behave differently. There was, um, there was a guest I had on whose episode I'm actually editing right now and I'll probably release this week. Um, and she and I worked together. Uh, she was actually a client of mine at an agency and I loved how she talks about social um, is that she talks about it as like you wouldn't show up to like a Halloween party with the same behavior and the same outfit that you would like a baby shower. And I'm like, oh, that's such a good way of describing it. And I think you know, the more you can expose kids to like different ways of, of that sort of thing. Like I know my cousins, I grew up going to church and my cousins didn't. And like, I've seen them like, you know, at like family, like funerals or weddings. And I'm like, ah, don't do that. Like, what are you like? This isn't how you act in church. Like you don't, I mean, listen, and every parent, like the worst thing you can do as a parent is like judge the way other people parent their children. But for me, I don't want my kid getting on social media at 13 or 14 when like there's hormones and expectations and insecurities and you're kind of all of those things are raging. And that's when you get on social media where you're judged and there's, you know, trolling and bullying and whatever. It's like, I just feel like that's really the worst time um, to to have all of those things. It's like the perfect storm of it all coming together when they're so, um, you know, they don't want to be judged and they want to be like all of their peers. And that's when they got on social media to your point, I feel like my son at the point where he turns like 13 or 14 is going to have been on supervised social for so long that it's just like, it's, it's, he's gotten past that point of like, are people judging me or is people, are people liking my content? Um, he just, he likes to have fun. And the more, you know, sometimes I'll say like, okay, you either have to turn your phone off or you have to create content. Like, don't just passively consume it. If you want to stay on oh, your phone, I like that. you need to go create content. And, and like there you're creating stuff and you're shooting something and you're figuring out how to edit it and what's going to be, you know, what's going to be good. So it's like, if I do anything to kind of limit or regulate screen time, it's like the amount of time he's passively consuming versus the amount of time he's creating. And I'd much rather I'm okay with him staying on his phone if he's creating content versus passively consuming it. I love that. I have one question from somebody who submitted a question from Neto Velasco. He asked, "How, um, how do you make brands want to work with you if you have a small following? Oh my God, that is such a good question. You have to find your value. So I work with influencers in all different kinds of spaces, um, but 
everybody has something that they can leverage. So either it's follower count, which as much as we say follower count doesn't matter, we know that there are some brands that they care about follower count. So, you know, maybe it's your follower count. If it's not your follower um, count, it's your engagement rate. If it's not your engagement rate, it's your qualified um, audience. So for example, let's say you want to work with a brand that's really interested in selling to, you know, a certain type of demographic and you have a lot of those users. So maybe you don't have follower account, maybe you don't have engagement, but you have a ton of followers in this city of a certain age group of like, whether it's like men or women or whatever. Um, there was somebody else that I was advising where they didn't have a great follower account. They didn't have a great engagement rate but they could do, they had a real life skill of being, um, uh, they were a food influencer who develops recipes. Oh, cool. And I'm like, okay, sell yourself as a recipe developer. And that's what they're paying for versus your account that is not that big. Your engagement rate is okay. It's not that great, but what you can like look for whatever your strength is. And so I think that everybody has something, whether it's like a real world expertise, um, an audience demographic, audience engagement, audience follower count, you know, there's, everybody has something that they can find and sell yourself on that, whatever that special something is that you have. And everybody has it, you know, maybe it's your persona, maybe you come across really well on video, um, whatever it is, it's like sell yourself on the strength of that, but figure out what you're, you need to like do some, some digging and some like internal analysis and analytical analysis and understand like, what is your strength? I love that. That's a beautiful response. Yes. And everybody has one. We all have one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. I'll keep, I'll keep searching for mine, Leah. Um, yeah, yeah. Meadow's a really great um, photographer. So I, I'm sure he'll really, uh, and he's like just really um, insightful. So I, I think that'll be like a very helpful response to him and anybody so else. That is exactly, yeah. I mean, if you're a photographer, get hired on the strength of your photography and being a content creator, as opposed to, you know, just kind of being a blanket, like I'm an influencer, here are my statistics, here's what I, you know, I can post this for you. Um, maybe you can help create content for them for their channels and help kind of like brand their, you know, visual kind of aesthetic of their, their account. So yeah, photographer, it's, that's a fantastic thing to have in your arsenal. I love that. Thank you. Um, my last question that I yes. ask everybody is what is something that you would like to hear a future behind the scenes podcast? Oh, my nose is stubby behind the scenes podcast episode about. Okay. And I feel terrible because I didn't look back through, uh, your archives to see if you had covered this, but, um, drop shipping. Oh, I love that idea. I, really, and this is actually more for me, I think it is, it's also for creators and for influencers. Um, you know, I, I think there's like a general interest, but I am just fascinated by drop shipping and understanding the mechanics of, you know, how you do it. And I think um, all of us, I'm seeing everybody, influencers, friends, other people, like everybody's setting up these little cottage businesses and I'm seeing people online and some people are baking and some people are making wontons and some people are making, you know, like doing other coke, hot cocoa bombs or whatever. And people are selling things. And I think it's just, we're in this really interesting time and space where everybody is creating these little cottage industries at home and these micro businesses. Um, so understanding more about drop shipping, for example, or just in general, like, you know, setting up your own, e-commerce business because we're all now little 
micro businesses, whether it's your side hustle or your main hustle. Um, I'm just, I'm fascinated by that subject. I love that. Yeah. Are there any specific ones that you like stand out when you think of, of them that you've seen that you like personally? No. And that would almost be a thing. It's like, who should I be looking at? Like there are always people in every space where it's like, they're a really great example or they do, they run a really great Instagram account where they explain what they're doing. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin to look. So I want to understand like who's doing really good work in that space. Who can I follow? Who can I get inspired by? Very cool. I love that. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much. Where should people follow you online? Where do you like to be followed? Primarily, I'm mostly on Twitter and LinkedIn, and it's at Leah Haberman on, on, on every channel. But I would say probably Twitter first and then LinkedIn if it's for work. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I will put links to um, both her Twitter and LinkedIn account in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for being here. This was super fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you and feel well. Thank you. I will. (laughs) Thanks. I appreciate it. Bye, Leah. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. As I'm sure you could tell, Leah and I had a great time, and I hope that you learned as much from her as I did. She gave me a lot to think about, and I just really appreciate her time and insight. You can find her at Leah, L-I-A, Haberman on Twitter, so please do that and follow her on LinkedIn. She shares some great stuff there, and it could be very helpful for your career. Again, feel free to support this podcast on anchor.fm slash BTS podcast. You can become a monthly supporter, or if you don't want another monthly reoccurring fee on your accounts, feel free to just shoot me some money on Venmo at Lene-Cook. So it is at L-Y-N-A-E-C-O-O-K on Venmo. Sharing episodes, subscribing, rating, and reviewing, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps a ton. At the start of this episode, I plugged a bunch of promo codes for apps and services that I love. I think you'll like them too. They are in the description of this episode. And if you sign up, you using them helps me just, you know, a little bit each time and it's greatly appreciated. Please do follow this podcast across social at at BTS, the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And there is a page and a group for this podcast on Facebook. Just look up hashtag BTS podcast and you will find both the guests and listeners group as well as the Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening and huge thank you to Benjamin Batherum for the music on this podcast. You can find him at soundcloud.com slash also linked in the description of this episode. Thanks so much. <laughs>